get ready to be inspired by the great things happening in rural education. The Rural Scoop will bring you new ideas and innovative solutions. We'll dive into education issues and we'll highlight what's working in your rural communities. You'll hear from a variety of educators, administrators, professionals, and others who will provide relevant and engaging content in each episode. And now, serving up the scoop, here's your host, Dr. Melissa Seydorf. I'm very excited to have a member of the Arizona Rural Schools Association Executive Board here. He's actually one of the newly seated board members. Uh, Andy Wanamaker is a regional representative, and I'm going to let him tell you a little bit more about uh, where he is located here in Arizona. But Andy, it is fantastic to be able to talk with you about your journey as a rural leader here in Arizona. And so why don't you get us started by giving us a little bit of background about who you are and where you are and maybe a little bit about your district. Hi, Melissa, and thank you for having me. And thank you for having me on the executive board. It is an absolute honor. Um so I serve the Aguila Elementary School District, which is in um, West Central Arizona. We are actually on Grand Avenue out here called Highway 60, uh, west of Wickenburg, about 20 to 25 miles. We actually are the very northwest corner school district of Maricopa County. We are 100 square miles. We're a very small district. We have uh, less than 150 students in our district. It does fluctuate some, but for the most part, we've sat around that for the last 10 years or so. Um, originally, I am actually not an educator. I uh, have a business degree from Ohio State, actually, and I did grow up in the middle of cornfields in Ohio, so I'm very comfortable in the rural setting. Our town, our county seat was a town of 10,000 people, mm-hmm. and I lived miles out of that town. Uh, like I said, in the middle of soybean and cornfields, uh, I grew up playing in a, in a little uh, town of 600 people where I played farm league baseball, little league baseball, soccer. So that was very common to me. Uh, a small community was very common to me. We gathered around basketball games to be mm-hmm. quite frank. Uh, our, our gym in high school seated 1300 people and we would have 1400 people at the games. I'm sure we were breaking the fire code for sure with the seats lining in front of the bleachers. Um, But that's Northwest Ohio, Indiana area for you. I worked in mortgage banking and a startup internet company Hmm. in the late 90s and early 2000s. And I started a progress over to education. Well, I've always loved education myself. I don't call myself the most brilliant person ever. I didn't go to an Ivy League school, but I always had an interest in higher education. And I think I always wanted to be a professor. I don't know how that got into me living on a farm as a kid. Uh, But I actually have a brother that became a medical doctor. And then there's me and there's four other brothers. And we've all kind of done something totally different, to be quite frank. Um, But I in Minnesota, again, I lived in the very edge of the Minneapolis-St. Paul area and around a lot of farming people, a very edge. So I was right on the edge of the metro area there. And my last thing that I did as far as internet work and um, you know technology was a startup uh, student information systems company for schools. And back then, 23 uh, years ago, schools were just starting to get the, bring these into their systems where they had a back-end SIS 
um, information system. Uh, we, we couldn't raise the money we needed to get that afloat and on and on. And there was a lot of work there. And what happened was I was going to move out here to Arizona because the real, real estate boom was really strong here and still is. And I, I came out here to be a mortgage banker and I found, I saw this little school in the Wickenburg Sun. There was a little advertisement for an after school program coordinator. And I was like 27 years old. And for some reason I applied for this job and basically received the job. Um, and that was just a little part-time job because I thought I needed something else to do while I was building up my mortgage banking career. I ended up dropping that within six months, came here and with a 20 hour a week job and within three months i had a full-time job running multiple grant programs being the athletic director coaching running a parenting <laughs> program um and it was a 21st century after school program and the rest is history that was 21 years ago and i've been here ever since wow so i probably talked a little too much there but mm -mm. um now everybody knows who i am Wow, that's okay. So I did not know that you had a business background. So what was attractive about going from a startup of a business mortgage company to rural? I mean, that that's a pretty big shift. <laughs> um, I think the in my mind, it didn't make sense. In my heart, it made total sense because really I'm all about people. And some people are just like that. Some people can just crunch numbers and be happy in a business setting. I think I like both. Mm. So I like, yeah, let's look at the business side of things. Let's understand the political side of things, the legal side of things. But really, when it comes down to it, if you're not affecting people in a positive way, I, I start losing interest. Mm -hmm. So I think rural education, it's very personable with the student. You personally know their parents, you know their grandparents sometimes. And I think that was very appealing to me. Also, to be quite honest, it's a, it's a high poverty community I work in. It's close to 90% free and reduced. And I think when I saw that, I said, you know, I could really build a lot of uh, infrastructure into their minds and their hearts, uh, things that they've never seen. A lot of them are Hispanic. They have first or second generation come from Mexico or Guatemala. And to me, it was just exciting to see uh, progress children would make over the 10 years on this campus. We're a KA dis district. We also have a preschool, three and four year old preschool. And just to watch them walk through that process and improve and, you know, understand the American culture and society a little bit better as we prepare them to go to high school. I, I guess I really can't put my finger exactly on it, but that whole process of just watching a student develop mm -hmm. um, and become part of this society and a lot of times it was a little different than the society they moved from or their parents moved from um very gratifying for me so now i have kids that i taught 17 years ago and 16 years ago they have their children in the district going through the district and some of them are even in the high school now and out of this school just wait till you start seeing their kids, their kids' kids. That's when you know you've been around for a while. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And actually, that's probably not too far away. Yeah, for sure. So so you started out as an after-school part-time rural employee of this school, and you're now the superintendent. So walk me through that journey from 
the part-time to now you're the head honcho. Yeah. Again, it was a windy road, but I think after a couple years of doing that, I think about two and a half years in, uh, Melissa, I uh, realized, so I had moved to basically a full-time employee and I realized that some of these grants were expiring coming up, uh, you know, I think in September, September 30th, they were federal grants. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the parenting grants were federal. And the only thing that was left was just this after school piece. It was a 21st century grant before an after school program. So I walked into that superintendent's office probably in about 2006. And I said, Will there be any possibility of me becoming a teacher so I can stay in the district? So obviously I like something. Well, she said, there's a sixth grade teaching position open. So I said, I do have a bachelor's degree. I had a substitute certificate, et cetera. She's like, okay, well, I'll see what the board says. You know, I, I think they might be interested because even back then it was fairly hard to find a, um, a teacher. And if you already know the kids, that might give you an advantage. Um, so that worked out. And not only that, the next year we had an interim superintendent. He came to me and said, I would like you to get your teaching certificate if you're interested. Well, I kind of put it off um, that first semester thinking, do I like this or not? Because your first year teaching sometimes is really interesting. And I was <laughs> still a fairly <laughs> young guy. I think I turned 30 uh, my first year teaching. Wow. I was 29 <laughs> turning 30. And in the second semester, though, I took him up on his offer. In fact, he was so generous. He actually said, you know, and on the pro- in the process of getting your certificate, why don't you just enroll in a master's degree program that also gets, is dual and it gets you your certificate too? The school district will pay for it. And I was very surprised. So I, and he recommended Grand Canyon University and I uh, enrolled there. And I think by 2008, I had my master's degree from Grand Canyon. So that got me fully certified as an elementary school teacher. And I started to feel like I think I'm starting to understand this educational piece because the first year or two, uh, yeah, from business, private business, thinking like a capitalist, which I still tend to flow that way a little bit, um, going to a teach to teaching in a classroom in a middle school in a rural school is is very different. Mm-hmm. So, and I didn't understand the connection how I could connect these two. But after I was teaching for three or four years, and I taught world history. And uh, there's a lot of literature pieces that we talked about where I could bring in my background and the enjoyment of that was wonderful. In fact, the kids, the kids here are soccer players and baseball players. And I always had to teach them, you know, there's more to life sometimes than just sports, although that's important. when you're a kid, you have to learn business and you have to learn politics and how things operate. So you know how to navigate the system, even if you're playing sports for a profession. Mm-hmm. So bringing all that into the system, I actually learned how to do that. Now in my current role, um, I taught for nine years then in the district and the school board one at a time kind of started asking me, would you have interest in being our our superintendent leading up to the retirement of uh, another superintendent that came a little longer later in the line there? And I guess by that time I had enrolled in a PhD program and I think I did have a principal certification or maybe I was even working on my superintendent cert, which I did some continuing ed for. And I knew I didn't probably know enough to do it, but I had run some, a lot of extracurricular programs and some after school programs. So I had a little bit of admin experience and I was hired in 20, 
uh, 15 as a 37-year-old superintendent, and I was probably in over my head on some things, some other things, as far as understanding the community. I did know the community and the staff fairly well, but some of the political things and just legal things I didn't know, so I, I ran into some bumps in the road. I definitely needed plenty of mentors, mm. let me just say that. <laughs> um, so that's that process, and a lot of bumps in that road, but I always stayed engaged with the kids, even to this day. I try to coach a sport every year or do something where I'm face-to-face with the kids. Uh, one is it calms the climate down a little bit in the school just because they know the front office knows them. Um, but also, I remember why I do what I do. And it's, so, really all about, it's really all about them. Yeah, so important. If you, if you step away from that lens of being student-centered and student-focused, it's unfortunately... Um, not as easy to do what you do. You have to have that why. So talk to me a little bit about, um, because you're talking about some successes that you've had along the way and and why you're doing what you're doing. But rural education comes with a whole host of challenges. And as a leader, you're the one that has to make some decisions and plan around some of those challenges. So for you with Aguila, what is the most pressing challenge that you have on your plate right now? Again, staying student-centered, you know, there's four or five main challenges. Um, but as far as my particular um, area and geography and local issues we have here is, and I think I made a comment about it, a lot of our families come from Latin America, or at least did, so some of our biggest challenges are um, seeing past, um, how do I say it, the poverty lens that they probably see through. Mm-hmm. Many of them see through that and they don't see quite any other way of life. And sometimes it's maybe not us convincing the parents, but it definitely is working through the children to see that, you know, in America, it's not perfect here, um, but there are a lot of opportunities. There really are a lot of opportunities. And being minorities, I really tell them, you know, you're going to be bilingual. Okay. Most of them are going to be bilingual. You live in the desert Southwest. We live close to a metro area. We're about 60 miles out from the metro, Phoenix metro. You have a lot of opportunities here. So you need to take advantage of those. So I always try to stay on the positive with all of them. Um, so the ELL piece and the high poverty piece are two huge challenges. Um, and I think honestly, recruiting teachers is huge. Mm. So, and that's not easy. I think I've really tried to build a local network out about 30 or 40 miles, not to take teachers from other schools, but, um, when they, when they've subbed here, we still do five day weeks here. So some of them sub here from time to time on the fifth day. Um, cause there are a lot of them are on four day weeks around here. Mm-hmm. Um, that's opened up to some people that have had some interest to our, our school culture here, which I think is a really good school culture. We were a school a couple of years. We float between low A and high B out mm-hmm. here. And we're fairly proud of that. I think some other pieces though, but besides working through the ELL piece and the, uh, poverty lens that the kids have is uh, hiring those good teachers is school safety and technology, some of those types of things. That's just a lot to work through. And I really took advantage of a lot of the COVID relief money for technology. There were some opportunities there, but I always keep my 
my um, my networking going with local administrators, especially rural school. Mm-hmm. I think when I started, I tried to connect with uh, Western suburbs folks a little bit more. And I realized they're not really meeting the needs that I have out here. So when I started really networking with uh, the school districts my size around here, a little bit bigger than me, the Wickenburg Unifieds, the uh, Natterbergs and the Morristowns and the Congresses and uh, the Salomas and the, and the Wendens and all those types of schools, I started really coming up with a lot of resources. And I always keep those bridges kind of built with mm-hmm. all those schools because one idea can give me a thought for a grant, a federal grant, a state grant that I didn't hear about. And sometimes a $30,000 grant for some technology is it cleans up a lot of issues. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really been my focus here. And we've, we've, sorry to say with us being so remote, we also don't have a presence, a policing presence in our town. And so school safety has been a big deal to me. And besides a lot of buzz indoors and uh, uh, gating, connecting some schools, um, just for peace of mind more than anything, because we've never really had, thank God, any issues on our campus besides very minor ones, but just school safety has been a big deal to me. And uh, again, finding grants, finding monies, however I can do it, because our budget doesn't meet our needs. Sure. Our our typical budget doesn't meet our needs. So um, resources are critically huge. Right. And that's that's interesting because, you know, we in rural Arizona, response times can be upwards of an hour or more, depending on where you're located. And we have the same issue with being county. So it's where is the sheriff today and Uh how long will it take to get there? So Uh uh, I'm sure you've focused on things like target hardening and training your staff and your students to know what to do in the event of an emergency. But you're right. It's a very different look at school safety than our urban and suburban counterparts. And exactly right. And our closest station for the county here is exactly an hour away. Mm. Um, I built a bridge, though, also with the Wickenburg Police Department. And that was important to me because they moved just, they're only 20 minutes away. So if there was a serious issue, they would be out here probably 15, 18 minutes. Mm-hmm. So uh, again, networking is huge. You're pulling on the resources that you can find. And you know what? What I found is most small um, communities or local communities, if they have anything close to the resource, they'll look at helping you to do something yep. uh, because again, they care about people and we're connected to the local towns around here. All the little towns in some capacity connect. So um I, I think networking is huge for me. Mm-hmm. And and that leads me to my next question, which is, you know, we, we do face issues of having limited resources in our own school boundaries. Um, and, and you've mentioned funding, technology, staffing. And what have you done to lean into your neighboring districts or what have you stood up yourself as maybe um, something that others can replicate or scale that are around you? Uh that might spark an idea for somebody that's listening in another area of Arizona that's in a rural school community. Well, I, I think that I think trying to be open to new things and different things is always important. And I guess I'll preface that with um, a, a copper mining company has an interest here in this town and um, financial interest, and they started reaching out to me some years ago. 
And some of the other uh, stakeholders here in town were very apprehensive in this. I decided I might as well listen in and see what they have to say. And what they provided at the table was outstanding. First of all, they're huge in the STEM and STEAM programming Mm -hmm. and granting for that. And they actually openly told me some of the school districts don't write the grants for these. And I, I also believe in at a small school making teachers, you know, treating them like professionals. I always say they're, they're vice presidents of a company here. They're running 15 to 20, uh, uh, humans in their room. They're overseeing 15 to 20 humans. Usually a paraprobe drops in at some point time during the day. And, um, we don't pay teachers great in Arizona, as you know, but, you know, close to $60,000 working nine months. Um, so I, it, you know, most of mine have master's degrees too. I'm like, I treat them like a professional. And so a lot of these, uh, resources I find out about, um, are teacher resources where they write the grants, you know, $400 mm. grants, $600 grants. And we've received, I don't know how many of these in the previous years, two of my teachers actually wrote grants uh, for ASU for a STEM program there. And I think those were $5,000 grants. Some of the money went to them and some went to the school for resources. Wow. wow. Um, but as far back to this company that we have, uh, this uh, copper mining company, they provided a grant writer to me. And that grant writer in a small district is huge because we just really don't have the, uh, maybe I'll say bandwidth. We just don't have the bandwidth to do it. So unless they're a real simple little grant, sometimes they don't get written. We don't, we're not Deer Valley or the big school districts that has multiple grant writers Mm -hmm. and time to meet about exactly what they want to do in the grant. It's kind of like go through it as fast as you can, see if you can get it done on time. Um, So a grant writer was huge for us again, because we're always trying to leverage extra funds. Um, Now, I find myself currently in a situation, and I know most schools would already know about this, but I'm right on the cusp of a small school adjustment, mm. enrollment number, ADM number. Sure. Talk well, a little I mean, bit about that, because we'll have listeners that aren't from Arizona that might not be familiar with that uh, ADM cutoff and what it means for you financially as a district. Sure. Sure. Well, one way without going to a you know November election vote to get extra funds. If you're a school district with an ADM below 125, do a small schools adjustment, it's called. And I am actually have the paperwork laying on my desk right now to consider this coming in the next few months because we, we do need extra funds. And with the uh, fiscal cliff we have coming up um, with the end of our COVID monies, um, that means for me, I have 20, 28 staff that I think report every week with subs and everything. Maybe we have 35 staff that are out here once a month or so. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're going to lose three employees. Well, three employees is a huge amount when you only have 28. Um, and those three employees, one way I found that I could keep them is if I go uh, through a process called small schools adjustment, which would basically be a levy to increase our taxes on our local residents uh, to fund the school district to maintain uh, the staffing. And um, I don't have all my ducks in a row yet, but I am laying it out for my board. It it goes to the board for a board vote. Uh, There is a truth and taxation hearing you have to have with your local residents um, where they do get to uh, speak 
uh, during the public comment period of your board meeting. But other than that, if my board is on board with it, when I think they are, because we want to keep our um, levels of education where they're at right now, otherwise a reading interventionist, a parapro, and a uh, social emotional coach slash librarian is disappearing who also two of those people are also my in-house subs mm. so we are kind of a lot of our job descriptions here in small schools you're a hybrid between sometimes two and three job positions to keep everything running smoothly and sometimes those people are critical in a small rural school so okay. uh, that's the general process of the small schools adjustment and you know I've researched a lot of these local districts here that are smaller than the 125 ADM, and they have anywhere between um, $150,000 and $800,000 that comes from their small schools adjustment. I can't believe how big some of the numbers are. Um, so we are looking at those numbers and seeing what we need to do, but three employees is a little bit of money and then having maybe a little extra. So that's something we're considering coming here May and June. And that's one way to leverage funds for sure at a really small school in Arizona. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good point. And now a word from our sponsor. So Andy, can you talk about some of the programs and um, fun practices that you've implemented to enhance those educational outcomes in the school? Because sitting at a high B and a low A year over year over year is not easy in a rural community. There's a lot of work that goes into doing that. And that means that what your teachers are doing is engaging to the students that they have in their classroom. So what are they doing that you would consider to be innovative? Well, one is I think hiring practices are critical. Sometimes we don't have huge um, applicant pools. So that one that you do pull, especially for teachers, those certified positions, th those are critical. And I tell them up front, this is kind of how I treat you. I treat you as a professional. You run your classroom. Yeah, I do walkthroughs and I do observations and I do everything I need to do. But I'm not, um, I'm not over your back, breathing down your neck. That's just not how I do things. I probably did that more when I was a younger superintendent. Mm -hmm. um, but I just don't have the time to be quite frank. And so I trust those employees that I hire to do their job. And I tell them that up front, and that kind of creates a little bit different of a culture in the school when I've already told them, I, I expect you to take care of those kids. Okay, that's that's on you. Uh, but besides that, um, one thing that is kind of probably my baby right now, um, and I guess it's potentially become a little political these days, but... I believe in character education and just promoting a lot of character development in kids. And I look at that across the board as part of every program that we do or becoming more part of every program that we do. Um, you know, in the morning we do um, the Pledge of Allegiance, our, 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 our uh, moment of silence, and then we have a character moment every morning. K3 is grouped together, 4-8 are grouped together, almost like many assemblies every morning. That's a five, six-minute assembly to kind of get our day started off right. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's a little bit of a throwback. You know, I just believe in patriotism and just respecting where we are in the world and respecting what we're growing up under as far as our government. Um, and not that it's perfect by any means, but I think that's a little bit more of a rural approach. Um and now what we're what we're doing is we have kind of a four-pronged approach to character education, and that's looking at things like character counts, an SEL program called Second Step, 
which is builds a lot of just how to how to treat other people appropriately, how to solve conflicts, how to build friendships. We don't build friends for kids, but we can help them maybe lay the groundwork to do that. And that gets rid of a lot of little dissensions sometimes in a classroom when kids just know how to problem solve a little bit with other humans. And real, more importantly, we're trying to teach them how to be more ready for being 15, 17, 19, 23, 25 years old. Um, and we have a couple other character curriculums that uh, really don't take teachers' time. Um, it's just something that embeds into the school culture. Um, recently, we've also started working with um, the Canyon Center for Character Education at uh, Grand Canyon University, who's, again, just uh, helping us solidify that program as we walk through that program. Uh, we believe in teaching with love and logic. So there's a firmness about teaching, but also the kids need to know that you love them, but you're making them accountable. And this directly affects, in fact, I was just reading research last night at my house that uh, this directly affects academic uh, mm. uh, outcomes. Yep. So now it, it's some work. It's some work. And I don't like to overburden staff with a lot of work because we're all very busy, but um we're, we're looking for our best outcomes and what people will be doing when they're 25 and 30 years old. And if they have an element of character that they learned um, in the schooling as they were learning their ELA, their math, their science, their social studies, if something's just embedded in there, because we're talking about different elements of character. Performance virtues is one thing that's not talked about, but that's something like fortitude, drive, ambition, and those things are hard to teach and it's hard to even uh, uh, measure those things. But you know when you're doing something that builds those those into students. And mm -hmm. I think that's critical for kids as they get out of high school and move into their career in college. Agreed. And, you know, Andy, you keep talking about the the culture and climate building that you do is just a regular function of your job day in, day out, and expecting the same thing from your teachers. And and that's pretty amazing because the positive school culture that you're building really does have that impact, direct impact on students and the outcomes that they're getting. So, I, you know, that's, that's wonderful to hear that they're getting that kind of environment at Aguila. You know, I just like... Uh... I think part of that culture, uh, Melissa, that I like is I, first I like staff coming to work and I like students loving to come to school. Do all of them love to come to school? Probably not. But our <laughs> attendance rates, I can't quote them for you. They're pretty strong. And um, they walk in with a smile on their face. And that's really what I want to see kids doing is coming to school. They enjoy being at school. We have good food as a side piece. I've always thought cafeteria <laughs> food's important. The kids should like it. And, you know, every sub that comes here and teaches says you have the best cafeteria food of all the schools I teach at. So those are little things, but those are big things when you add them all up. Sure it is. <laughs> So uh, you and I talked a little bit previously about place-based education, which is something, it's a fancy term for using the assets in your local community to help uh, drive instruction. How are you incorporating local culture and your community at large, whether it's geography or people or other assets that might be in place to um, drive some of those educational programming? Yeah, looking at two things, maybe three things. Um, one is, and I've already alluded to it, uh, 
there is an FMI uh, mine up in uh, Baghdad, Arizona, and um, they've really been a wonderful partner of ours. And we're just getting back to after COVID, um, wanting to take kids up there and as science field trips and work with them um, <clears throat> because they've also been a great, not just, you know, educational partner, but financial partner. Um, the grants we've written with them, they've still increased our uh, platform of technology that we provide to the students. Um, I've bundled different grants to get smart boards in classrooms, mm. build the one-to-one Chromebook ratios. And we have all that now, but we were four years ago, not even close. So I was buying like one interactive or smart board at a time for a classroom, one or two. And we, you know, had 12 or 13 classrooms here to cover. And I'm like, this is going to take too long. So they, um, and also the one-to-one, we were trying to get a Chromebook card and Chromebooks sets in each classroom. And they might've funded half of that project, both of those projects over the course of two or three years. And combining that with some other funding, obviously E-rate helps a lot on some of your infrastructure. We're getting ready to do, we did Wi-Fi also, supercharged our Wi-Fi to make it more commercialized. We were working with uh, basically home setup all around mm. our building, um, and we commercialized that in 2019. I think we're going to probably upgrade that again in 25 or 26 with E-rate funding. So that's something that people can pull on. But I guess, yeah, back to FMI Baghdad, they've really been a great partner for us. And I think, so that's the STEM piece from them. Um, also, more and more ranchers are starting to move into our community. Mm. And so we have a... I think it's called Cowboy Poetry Contest that we do each fall, just as an example. And this is with a Wicca, the Wickenburg Museum, actually. And it's a wonderful museum expanding. It's right downtown. Some Arizona listeners probably have been past it or been in it uh, because it's right at the downtown uh, stoplight. But they, um, they'll send out uh, ranchers to have uh, discussions with the kids, and we get them all in the gymnasium, and they'll bring their horse and everything right in the gym <laughs> and uh, just share stories about old-time ranching, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, which I think is still very similar to how it used to be. But um, just taking advantage of those resources to get kids to see a different perspective and more to delve into the lifestyle that's right around them, I think is very, very important. So uh, those are two keys that we've always done. Of course, we have a Maricopa County. We are privileged to have a Maricopa County branch library here in town. And I have him coming back on a committee with me on this character education committee. And he's going to teach some of the same things in their evening programs that they do uh, between three and six o'clock in the afternoons, evenings over there at that library. And a lot of kids are there every evening. So we're going to join forces, link arms with them, I think too, on our character education, but also our STEM pieces. We also work with them. They have Chromebooks and uh, so forth over there too. Um, so we kind of work with them and we usually know the programs that they're running and we're trying to build off of their programs or they're trying to build off of what we're doing here at the school. So a small town library can be a great asset and resource to your school. Absolutely. They're great partners. We serve the same families. <laughs> 100%. So I'm going to shift gears just a little bit and um, talk about rural advocacy. You were at our ARSA Winter Advocacy Workshop 
which was phenomenal. I'm glad that you were able to make it. Um, but one of the things that we talked about was obviously telling our rural stories and elevating rural voice to conversations that are happening for us um, state level wide. We're in Phoenix, making sure that rural voices are elevated. Um but there's also local conversations that we need to ensure that we're being uh, at the table for. So if, if you were able to quantify or identify local or state level policy that you would want to make sure that you were de- involved in those discussions around, what would those things be? Well, I think, first of all, as a rural school administrator, I, I think just to understand just to get policymakers to understand the viewpoint you have. An example for me was, um, and I talked about this at my small group at the advocacy conference when we had that last month, Melissa, but, um, and rightfully so, I understood the law that was coming down or going through the process down there a few years ago. But uh, if you had any relationship to any other board members, and I can't remember the distance it was, but you know, you couldn't serve on the board together after so many more years, they were going to eliminate that. And I just told them I had um, a uh, lobbyist basically work for me or work for one of the associations I'm part of, tell them, you know, in a small district, sometimes there's three or four families that come and dominate the jobs or uh, um, board member uh, positions that have a little bit more of a white collar flair to them. Um, and sometimes they're related and I don't know that I can get it. I, my board would have dissolved down to nothing if that law would have <laughs> taken, took an effect on our board. Now it's different now over the years, I've had different board members come in, but anyway, so that was changed. And I think it was raised to any school. Um, I think the count was 600 students or less didn't apply to, um, but some other key things I would look at is just uh, teacher teacher salaries and benefits. It's so huge in Arizona to keep increasing teacher wages with the rate of inflation, and we're, we're probably not even close right now. Um, that's very important. That's something I would like to be part of. Um, mm-hmm. You know, another thing that is huge, and I was able to get some projects done with some of the um, ESSER monies and uh, some other monies I came across, but just capital funds. Mm. Uh, I feel like we're funded at a very small percentage, maybe half of what we really need. And with some struggles and getting some things through, you know, just to keep buses up to date, when you need a new, buy a new bus, um, unless some kind of grant comes out, we don't, we're broke if we buy a bus. And I think one trend that's coming along now is some kind of mental health um, community resource. And that's another thing that I talked to my librarian about. He has a lot of connections that I don't have. And he was just in my office last week. And he works with places like the University of Arizona, uh, uh, Adelante Healthcare. And um, he has connections I don't have. Mm -hmm. So I'm letting him work some of those angles, but he seemed to be a little bit more maybe in the mental health and my uh, investment have been as far as time recently. So I think he already has some groundwork built for some of those. And he already had the University of Arizona coming out doing health clinics and so forth in his library in the evenings or on the weekends. So he was going to look into that and, you know, just being able to identify these issues getting a little training for staff so we can get resources to, you know, maybe adults, but especially the children. 
mm-hmm. so they can get some counsel or whatever they need, some coaching to work through those issues because we don't want uh, a mental health issue um, restraining them from getting their education. Yeah, absolutely. So we talked quite a bit about some of the challenges and barriers that you're facing, but there are successes, obviously, with an A-B school, you have some some pretty significant successes as well. Um, what's a success story that you could share with us that highlights both your leadership and your school uh, community? Yeah, well, Melissa, I think getting an A was huge success for us. Um a couple years ago. Um, but I think more than just that is when I see, um, and I'm just blunt about it, Hispanic uh, parents come in or Caucasian parents or grandparents come in at the Thanksgiving luncheon and they're coming up to me as I'm serving them uh, pumpkin pie, right? And saying, hey, can can I volunteer here? I'd like to volunteer here. Those are That says a lot to me because that means when they walked in, there's something that they like about walking Mm -hmm. into our gymnasium, our cafeteria. Um, That's huge to me. Um, I think that another huge success is our teacher retention. A lot of times teachers come here and they just stay. They don't leave and they'll be here for anywhere between 10 and however many years. So I think, I think they, again, I think it's school culture and, but not everybody's made for that. Some, and rightfully so, some, so teachers like the urban or the suburban uh, community, and that's fine. Um, but certain people fit well into a, a rural school. And I think um, that's a success. But I think more than all that is just seeing staff work together, knowing our one common good is the sons and daughters of Aguila, Arizona, and what they're doing when they're in their 20s and 30s, and that they're having a successful life. I mean, that's really the bottom line. And I've seen that over and over again. And I think some other things is just when we have homegoing, homecoming events, which we don't really have in an elementary district, but uh, we do some community things where we do, well, our Christmas program, I'll see a lot, a lot of kids come back for that because they have little siblings here in our school. Um, but also we do a, a, a yearly annual basketball game. I think we're on our 20th with the Maricopa mm-hmm. County Sheriff's Office. And a bunch of the kids show back up to play in that, that are firefighters or police officers now. And I think sometimes just their testimony of wanting to come back to the school. And and these aren't all academic. Some of them are very qualitative and intangible. But um, when we are an A or a B district and you see all those pieces too, now you have quantitative, um, you know, student success and you have qualitative. And so now we're over to the mixed methods. Uh, but those pieces are, those speak volumes to me. So we're doing something right here in Aguila. And I, I guess I'm just part of being, I'm proud of being part of that process. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen it for 20 years. And the longer you're here, the more you see the whole picture of of what's happening. One of the expressions that I love is rural advantage. And you may have already started answering this question, uh, but what does the term rural advantage mean to you as the superintendent of Aguila Elementary School District? You know, uh, I would say the advantages at a rural school outweigh um, an urban school, but that's why I've stayed here. It's not for everybody. And some people are probably more built for the urban or the suburban, but in a rural school, when a problem does arise, usually you can call the person and they'll come into your office. Okay. So problem solving is much easier. 
because it can just be face-to-face. And usually, usually just one or two families is who you have to talk to. Mm-hmm. And you could usually solve those problems. Not always, but usually you can. So, you know, being in a close-knit community, um, you know, many people are out for this. Every, everybody wants the common good for everybody, right? So I think that's part of the rule advantage. And I think being able to see again, with your own eyes, kids grow up right before you. And then when they go to high, I mean, I'll, I'll get a, uh, a message from a parent or even a kid that's they're playing football. Um, and they're asking me to come watch their game. Well, that typically doesn't, unless you coach them in football, when they were in middle school, you're probably not going to get that call or that message or that phone call from mom or dad, but, um, graduation parties, all these little things. It sounds really simple, but at a big school, you personally have grown with up with these uh, kids and these parents. And um, I think that's the close net about it. You, you know, their successes, you know, their failures. They sometimes know yours. <laughs> um, so I think that with the rule, that's the rule advantage. Now, academically, and, and maybe I haven't focused on academics enough, but it's a theme of everything I say. Um, academically, um, we can really bridge kids moving from grade level to grade level at a small district. Everybody personally knows them. Everybody personally knows their family. We have great success at our parent-teacher conferences. 99% of our parents show up at the parent-teacher conferences. They just all come. Um, another great thing is at a rural school, our families, at least in our district, and this isn't probably across the board, but they see our teachers as the professional. Hmm. So they let them do their job and they know that our teachers know that, you know, in certain districts, that's not the case. There's a lot of other fires to put out that they might not be able to have to put out here at Aguila Elementary School. I think those are some of the huge advantages of being in a in a rural district. And you know what? The drive to school is one of the advantages, too. Just looking at the snow-capped mountains this morning. um, Beautiful. Arizona has some beautiful views. Yes, we do. Beautiful views, beautiful sunsets, beautiful vistas. <laughs> Absolutely true. So, Andy, is there anything that we did not touch on that you want to make sure that you highlight around your rural work? Well, I guess just to capstone everything, um, because I think I've touched on a lot of pieces or they were themes throughout what I said. Again, the view of me driving out from Wickenburg, Arizona to Aguila, Arizona, you, you entered between two mountain ranges, the Hakwahela Mountains and the Harkavor Mountains. Right now, they happen to be snow-capped, which maybe happens once a year because you can see up into Yavapai County, getting towards Prescott on the one way and on the other way. Um, I don't think there's any towns over there, but... Uh, <laughs> um, that view kind of starts my day driving out here. It's a 25 to 30 minute commute for me. And, you know, it's just like home when I enter into the building. Um, I feel that it's a very safe place. I feel it's very safe. And I think kids feel the same thing. Um, But again, um, I came from Ohio, uh, that whole Midwestern area of the United States always looked at as the breadbasket of America, right? Well, out west here, we're a little different, a lot more ranchers and so forth out here, which again, it's just, I think it's the beauty's in the eye of the beholder. So when you find that right fit for you, um, I think you just know it mm-hmm. and you just, you love the grind. You love 
you love getting up and doing what you do. And you didn't realize it. And all of a sudden, 20 years passed. Which <laughs> what happened to me here in Aguila. It's been 21 years that I've worked here in Aguila. And I've had a blast. It's not been perfect. But when you find your fit, you just find your niche. Well said. Well said. Thanks for spending some time with me. I was I was very glad to learn more about you and your school district. Yeah, and hopefully uh, somebody else out there, one of our listeners, learned something about rural schools. I, I don't pretend to be the expert, not even nearly as much as Miss you, Miss Melissa. But um, <laughs> maybe there's a few pieces that somebody picked up on. But I think a lot of it comes from your heart, um, your mind, and your heart. You know when a job speaks to you, and you're a match. And uh, that's what it did for me here. But, uh, you know, every day working with kids and seeing them grow, you know, not just their academic growth, but their social, emotional, the whole piece. Um, academics, I always look at as the given. So that has to be happening. But there's some these other components that I think are critical for kids. And when I see that whole holistic child kind of developing, whether they grow up to paint aircraft, be a nurse, doctor, lawyer, farmer, wherever they go, um, those pieces should add value to their life and to the rest of our lives. Mm -hmm. Very true. Thanks, Andy. Thank you, Melissa. Thanks for having me today. Thank you so much for listening to The Rural Scoop. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe, or even leave us a comment. And be sure to follow on Twitter at Dr. Sadorf. That's D-R underscore S-A-D-O-R-F so that you never miss a new release. You can also check out previous episodes of The Scoop wherever you get your podcasts. Production support for The Rural Scoop is provided by Chattanooga Podcast Studios. Find out more at chattanoogapodcaststudios.com. See you next time for more great discussions about rural education. Proud member of the Podnuga Network.